This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Two police officers were shot and killed in Harlem last week. A Baltimore police officer was ambushed while sitting in a patrol car. It is happening more and more in America, and we're going to talk a little bit today about how it can be reduced. Today, our guest is our police analyst, Gary McElhenney, former union president of the Baltimore Fraternal Order of Police and a former police chief. Hello, Gary. Hey, Jerry. How are you? Yeah, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me. Um, So last week, two police officers shot to death in Harlem. Already four police killings across the nation in just this month, January alone, Last year, 55 police officers shot to death, the highest total since 1995, and almost 20 more than the year before. Why is it happening, do you think? I, I think there's there's a variety of reasons, um, and most of them can be laid um, at the feet of our elected officials and our police leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they've really emboldened criminals in this country mm-hmm. by the depolicing that has been occurring in some of our major cities has sent a message that there's simply no consequence mm-hmm. um, on anybody's actions. So it's not a really a far leap from sticking a gun in somebody's face and robbing them on the street yeah. than it is to um, mm-hmm. confront a police officer um, and, you know, and shoot them if that's, you know, your means of escape or whatever you might want to be doing. And many of these deaths are occurring on re- routine calls. The Harlem deaths occurred um, with a domestic disturbance, and we had two police officers recently killed in Bradley, Illinois, and they were answering a complaint about dogs barking in a hotel parking lot. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I understand, and you could tell me, that many of these shootings happen on domestic disputes and um, what's the other uh, police stops, but, you know, t- traffic stops. Why do right. you think that is? Well, because those are situations where you, first of all, in domestics, for example, you got, you got a lot of volatility going on there mm-hmm. and you're trying to maintain order, but you are dealing with, you know, in some cases, two individuals, right? Mm-hmm. If it's a husband and wife or a spouse or um, neighbors or, or something like that, where tensions have been simmering and are high for a while. Um, and you're trying to diffuse it because it might not necessarily need a police presence, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're mm-hmm. playing... You're playing social worker. You're playing, you know, marriage um, counselor, <laughs> marriage counselor, yeah. you know, whatever. And and somebody's not going to win. And, and there's a lot at stake for these folks sometimes in, in these type of cases, you know, and it's different from a policing perspective, even though, listen, from from day one in the police academy, people are taught police officers are taught, you know, the two most dangerous things you can do a domestic call and a traffic stop. Right. Traffic stops are different. You know, you're on the street. Um, you can't see what's going on in that car. You don't know what the heck you're walking into. Mm-hmm. Um, when you walk up on that car, you don't know anything about what that person might or might not have done in the past 10 minutes mm-hmm. or what they might be wanted for, or what they think they might be wanted for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a dangerous situation or it could just be, you know, the guy ran a stop sign. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But so as a police officer, you got to balance how you're going to handle that call for service. And so much second guessing is going on now in our community. Um, like I said, from elected officials and police leaders that it's, it's making, 
there's there's a certain amount of hesitation in policing now. Sure. That I I have never seen in my over forty years in this business. Sure. And um, I that's it. I, I I like the fact that you mentioned with the police stops. You don't think of it. You can't see. I mean, you can't see in that car. You don't know what they have, and that's got to be a pretty scary situation when you're walking up on a car like that. Yeah, and you're you're trying to do it in a professional manner because you don't know what's going on in in that car. It just could be somebody had a bad day, ran a stop sign, ran a red light. Right going too fast. And and you're going to walk up on a situation where you can't see somebody's hands and cops are taught from day one, you don't have control of the situation until you have control of the hands. Mm, mm, mm. There's nothing else on that guy that's going to hurt, that guy or gal that's going to hurt you, really, besides the hands. And I see a lot of officers now, um, when I get stopped, I'm just kidding, on the other side of the car. Um, they, they come in on the passenger side now rather than coming up to the driver. Is that more of a technique that's being used now? It, it is. It gives you some space. It gives you maybe a fraction more reaction time, if you will. It's not always feasible, mm. particularly if you got multiple people in a car, right? Sure. It doesn't doesn't do you any good. I've seen it more and more, and I've seen it taught more and more when possible mm. for officers to approach from that side. It gives it gives them a little distance. It gives them that, that pillar of protection, if you will. Um, that center post in a car. Most cops, you know, most people are right-handed, so it doesn't put you in a tactical disadvantage side. So you patrolled the streets of Baltimore, which, you know, we know is one of the most violent cities in America. And you went into neighborhoods that are probably the most violent in America. Uh, what do you do to protect yourself from being killed in one of those, you know, poor neighborhoods? You know, you, you really rely on your instincts, uh, your training, and what people really don't understand is the little hairs on the back of your neck, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. you know? Um, yeah. So often people want to think this is a, is a game that, you know, we're in that's um, there's a book written for every scenario. Sure. Um, and there's a training scenario that can get you through anything. But it's just, it's just not realistic. Plus you rely on your partners. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's leads us into something else, Jerry, which is, you know, the shrinking size of these major police departments mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and not having the backup that you used to have on the street. Yeah. Um, and you, you can tell, you know, I, I know when I was in patrol, if my side partner, the guy that worked the post next to me or gal was on the radio, I could tell by their voice if they needed me to come. You know? Sure, sure, sure. And the other thing is a lot of the patrols are single single officer now. I mean, it used to be always, you know, one out of 12, two, uh, two <laughs> officers, you know, but um, it's a single police officer rolling up on that person. And then if it's gotten to the point, they make the call and, and get the backup or if someone's in the area. But um, how about that single police officer, um, you know, just, just walking into a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, that's something that really happened. I mean, in, in Baltimore, my whole career was a single car. Mm-hmm. Very rarely did you have a, a partner, and that was usually if their car broke down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, needed, you needed to double up. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's been single cars for decades in this country. You know, if you're sitting still, as we've seen in New York, for example, you could be sitting still mm-hmm. in your car, and mm-hmm. um, you're still vulnerable. Yeah. If, if, if a bad guy really wants to do you harm, um, there's not a whole lot you know, you can do about it sometimes, you, you, you know, you turn to what, what kept us safe in the city was really just knowing our environment, knowing our area and right. having numbers helps. Mm-hmm. Um, even the baddest of the bad guy. Um, if there's three or four of you there, yeah, um, they're thinking twice. 
Mm-hmm. And, and and for me, it used to be I, I feared the the younger guys on the street more than mm-hmm. the um more than the older season guys. Mm-hmm. The the younger guys tended to do stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. The older guys, if you got them, you got them. Yeah, right. Yeah, they they're dirty. Yeah. They're and you they're dirty and and they know you know they're dirty and they're going okay. Price of doing business. Mm. The younger guys, not so much. And a lot of these people that are involved in these shootings, are they people that have backgrounds in criminal, you know, criminal, you know, arrest? And, and or they, I know, remember in the Wendy's this situation, the guy was on probation and uh, he was fearing going back to jail. Is that part of why they do this? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the fear of going back to jail, for t- particularly for people that have been there for any amount of time, is, is real. Um, it's not a pleasant place to be and they know it yeah. and um, they, do, they don't want to go back there. And sometimes they'll make, you know, these are split second decisions. Yeah. I think, I think in most cases, these are, these are people that are confronted. They, they, they panic, if you will. And um, they make a decision that they're going to try to get away. And, and you, you were talking a little bit about the hairs on the back of your neck. And I always think about, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of police departments and different things. But I always think about, you know, when you put that uniform on in the morning and you're going out that door, you don't know whether you're going to come back and see your family again. I mean, anything can happen on the streets. What's that like when you do that? You get, you're getting ready in the morning and you're it's particularly you. I mean, you went into some of the baddest neighborhoods in America. What, what's it like when you put that uniform in the morning? Looking back on my career, I think about it now more than I probably did when I was in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. You really can't. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to function mm-hmm. if you're if you're scared. Mm-hmm. There are situations that make you scared, and you know, and afterwards you go, "Wow, um, what just happened?" But you you can't really. I don't think any police officer can really function if they're concentrating on the dangers of the job really on a 24 seven basis. So you just dive in, you just dive, you dive in. in. Yeah, job, yeah. you do. Listen, we've talked about it before. It's a fun job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you're young and, and aggressive, you chasing bad guys and catching them. Yeah. It doesn't get, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> um, you know, a guy that's 10 years younger than you and you chase them and you're going over fences and in alleys and, he runs out of gas because, you know, and you don't and you, you land on top of him. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> yeah. That's TV stuff, right? That's, that's Batman and Robin. Yeah. That's what, you know, that's worth down in a few afterwards with your buddies. <laughs> um, you know? Yeah. Because it is. I mean, it is TV. I mean, TV always exaggerates and yeah. things like that. But, you, you know, you get to see it on TV and they love it. You're right. They love to go and, and do the chase and look up the stairs to see if they're there and, you know, the whole yeah. kind of thing. I mean, your heart's beating a million miles a minute and you're, yeah. when it's going on and, yeah. you know, you got tunnel vision and you're, you're concentrating on what you're doing. It's only afterwards that you have the opportunity to reflect. Yeah. Um, but, Listen, that's that's the kind of cops I wanted working for me when I was chief. Mm-hmm. Right. I wanted guys that wanted to go have fun and lock up mm-hmm. bad guys. Yeah. And your son is now a uh, trooper. Is that right? Maryland State Police. Uh, he works for the Transportation Authority. So they patrol. They, they, they patrol Interstate 95. So what what do you tell him? What I mean, you have that now you're in a different position. You're a parent now and your son's out there. What do you tell him? Be careful. And I love you. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know, I don't want to overburden him with my worry. Sure. Now I know what it's like to, you know, for a spouse. Right. 
or, or, or a parent, you know, what mm-hmm. you know, my mom didn't, was not appreciative when I told her I was joining the Baltimore city police department. Sure. Um, she didn't understand why one of the slower counties wasn't a, wasn't a goal of mine. Right. Sure. Listen, when my son decided to join, I was proud. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's a, a really good cop. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you, so it's funny cause when your son calls you after a shift and says, Hey man, we got a guy with a gun tonight. Yeah. Having been in the business, I'm like, cool, great job. Yeah. Yeah. But you must have that constant worry. I mean, you know, you know, he's out there and you, yeah. it must be, it must be constant in your head. It is. But again, just like if you're on the job, you got to put it aside. He's doing sure. what he, he's doing, what he loves to do. Right. Um, he's good at it. You trust him. Every conversation ends with be careful. I love you. It's a great career. I, um, it's tough now. Um, I don't know. He's been on for a couple of years. I don't know if I would encourage him now to join. Right. It's a different atmosphere than when it's, you were on. It's a different atmosphere than I was on. And quite frankly, in the past five or six years, um, at least in our area, it's a different atmosphere here as well. Things have changed. Not necessarily the dangers of the job from the bad guys, mm-hmm. but the dangers of the jobs from the politicians is um, is real. Yeah. We had in Tampa, we recently had five sheriff deputies uh, shot on one call. And uh, and most of these shootings are unprovoked. They're considered, but they're considered intentional. Are there actually people out there who are are out there trying to gun for a police officer? Uh, There is a certain amount of that. I mean, we had, we had an officer, um, as you, as you mentioned in Baltimore here, that was simply sitting in her patrol car. Yeah. I mean, I, if that's not an execution, I don't know what is. Sure, sure. Um, she wasn't on a call for service. There was no, she wasn't in the middle of arresting anybody. Um, she was sitting in her car. Yeah. Um, that's pretty scary. That's, now that's scary. That is scary because she did nothing. Uh, she didn't, you know, she was not in a, a, what would be called a dangerous situation. But it seems like more and more of these killings are intentional and unprovoked. And you talked a little bit about the cl- the change in the climate and the feeling that, you don't the, the elected officials and your bosses to a point don't have your back. And it, it, what's it like, you know, with that out there? Yeah, that's the hard part because you expect, you know, the guy in front of you, the bad guy, um, you expect behavior, certain behaviors from them. Yeah. What you don't, what what young guys on the job don't understand is the the political ramifications that come with every move that you make. We had um, what was it, over three hundred and sixty some officers shot in the country this year. Yeah. We I think yeah. it was three sixty four. Wow. The amount of ambush attacks described as, you know, not involved in a call for service was up 115 percent over 2020. Wow. And the other thing is we're seeing you and you and I were in Baltimore. You know, we were seeing 300 killings a year and 40 percent, I think, of American cities have seen a rise in, in the last couple of years. Is there a correlation between the police shootings and then the rise in homicides in general? Um, because police yeah. are operating in that atmosphere. Is there a relationship? Absolutely. Um, we have a much more violent society, and that's just going to come into the policing uh, world um, at the same rate it's come. Because, you know, we're the ones out there dealing with it. So, you know, if it's happening on the street, it's affecting the police as well. I've always said, and, and police don't have a problem with this. That's what folks got to understand. Um, I've always said that, you know, the 
the price to be paid for safer communities is going to be paved in our blood. Yes. yes. You know, I mean, because yeah. no one else is going to go get these folks. Yeah. There's, there's no other segment of society that's responsible for going to get people that are willing to kill other individuals off the streets. And there's also been a, a dramatic rise in gun sales. I don't know if it's a COVID thing. I don't know if it's about the political polarization of the country. How much of the rise in gun sales is playing into the shooting of police officers? Yeah, I, I don't know. I just know, you know, in a city like Baltimore, there's guns are so easy to get. Sure. I, I don't care if sales are up or down. And they're not coming from legitimate gun shops. Exactly. So I don't see a direct correlation. Obviously, the more guns you have on the street and the more bad guys that are capable of getting those guns, the, the more dangerous situation you have. The, the individual that killed the two police officers in New York this week, you know, he came from Baltimore. Wow. The gun that he had was stolen here. Hmm. You know, there's a, there's, there's a, the, 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 the concern is not the amount of legal guns on the street. It's the amount of illegal guns on the street. Right, right. I remember we had a case in Florida. So it was an interesting story. They they found it was a, a carjacking. Two people got killed. And the reporter went and traced the gun. And here it was stolen out of a car during a wedding. And uh, I actually went to a gun show one time. I guess Clinton was, you know, kind of getting tough on guns. And uh, there was a guy buying three. And I said, why are you buying three? And he says, I'm replacing the three that got stolen. <laughs> so oh, there's this funnel, you know, there's this funnel out there. You mentioned, com you know, community with they call community policing and the defund the police and people saying, Hey, we want to take this money from the police, give it to the mental health workers, give it to the addiction workers. You and I know that community policing did not work in Baltimore and, and the 300 murders a year continued. Um, what's your thought on this community policing and, you know, trying to make police officers, social workers, it seems. Well, you're, you're right. We went through that in Baltimore um, with a police commissioner that came from the West coast. Um, and try to make the proverbial, you know, round peg squint in a, fit in a square hole, right? Mm -hmm. um, he just, he, he didn't get it. There's a balance. Police officers should be active in the community, um, but not to the detriment of their ability to work and enforce the laws. Um, and, you know, what, what you often see is so many resources going into um, what people want to term community policing. and you know, the resources are limited and mm -hmm. those resources come from, then come from the streets. I mean, mm -hmm. it's nice. Listen, it's great on social media to see a, you know, a cop playing basketball with some kids, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that cop's not, should, is supposed to be in my neighborhood protecting me. Yeah. Then that's what he needs to be doing. Cause that's why we're paying. Him. Right. And, and I guess with the feeling with this whole defund police, and this is kind of, I guess, a logical conclusion, is that the officers don't feel like people have their back anymore. Yeah, I mean, the defund the police movement, um, we have a governor here in the state of Maryland that's kind of turned that around and said refund the police. Mm -hmm. um, so he's put a lot of money and resources into policing in the state. Um, and it's it, to me, it's, it's more symbolic. Mm -hmm. You know, when you tell cops, hey, we don't want you doing these certain things. So we're going to defund you. Cops didn't want to do that stuff to begin with. Right. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Trust me. Cops don't want to go on, on, on the call for the mental case mm -hmm. with a guy that's off his meds. Right. Right. You want to send a social worker, go for it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not going to end well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, cops know what the kind of calls they need to be going on. Um, but it's not a, it's not a one for one situation. You can't, reduce the amount of calls 
that a police officer might go on and then say, we need, we can reduce the equivalent amount of funding. Right. Right. Okay. Because now you freed the cop up to go do some real proactive policing. And then you and I talked about it before, you know, um, when the Freddie Gray um, incident happened, Freddie Gray was a small time hood, got thrown in a police wagon, shackled, fell or tumbled and broke his neck. Police officers were charged uh, and cleared. But um, after that, the arrests went down. And you and I were with the prison system at the time. So we actually saw the numbers because they were coming into the Baltimore jail or not coming into the Baltimore jail because it seemed like police officers were saying, hey, if I'm going to get locked up for doing my job, I, you know, I don't have to do it. I mean, I, I, I every move you make in a poor, poor neighborhood is going to be scrutinized. Um, and is there that feeling like, hey, I, I don't need it? Yeah. I mean, in policing, it's, you know, it's the ultimate self-employment, if you will. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're driving down the street by yourself in a cop car. You can even have you can have your head on a swivel mm-hmm. and be looking for things to get into. Um, or you can put blinders on and do your eight hours. Yeah. Um, either way, you're getting paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and one way in particular, you're going home safe, not only physically, but the threat of prosecution. Human nature is going to tell you for some people, I'm taking the alternative. I'm putting the blinders on and they're going to, this community is going to get the kind of policing they want. I can tell you it's not the kind of policing the communities want. You know, people in West Baltimore and East Baltimore as you know, want to feel safe. Right. You know, parents want to be able to let their kids play out on the stoop or go to the playground um, or go play basketball or go to the rec center. Oh my God, we had a we had a young woman, a, a kid walking out of a rec center a couple months ago and just shot. Wow. Leaving, leaving band practice. Mm, mm, it's mm. hard in these communities. It's a hard way to live. And I think they want the police. And I think given the choice between um, – properly funding and giving them enough police in their community or defunding the police. They're going to choose to have police in their communities. They want them. Yeah. We, we had, uh, there was a kid, I guess a baby that caught a stray bullet was either Washington or New York recently. And there was a lot Washington. of outrage. I was, yeah. yeah just, um, so what does it do that when you have an officer like this woman sitting in her car and she's ambushed and this has happened in many cities, it's happened in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just sitting there and, and, and what does that do? What's the ripple effect um, to the other police officers on the department? We're, we're family. They're yeah. family. Um, I, I think too little detentions paid to um, officers who are involved in those traumatic situations, whether they're partners, side partners, coworkers, mm-hmm. um, and how they react afterwards. I, I think there's too too little paid too too little attention paid to those people who basically, as you can imagine, in a matter of days are back out there doing the same thing. Sure. Um, yeah, I think sure. we really need to invest in uh, the mental health of our police officers, just like we should be doing more for the mental health of our military. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't slight the military chair at all. Guys are mm-hmm. guys and gals are amazing, but mm-hmm. they're doing two, three, four year tours. Yeah. Right. Our guys in West Baltimore, they're doing 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wears on them. Yeah. And we, there's a situation in Philadelphia. So they have a DA up there called Larry Krasner and he's been a lot more, not defund the police, but he's been more, let's reduce the jails. Let's, you know, let's not charge, you know, the minor crimes. And Philadelphia's gone nuts. I mean, it's just, yep. there was, there was a cartoon in, uh, in, uh, around Christmas with Santa Claus putting a vest on 
uh, you know, bulletproof vest. And he said, he's getting ready to go into Philly, you know. So, um, but it was interesting. You mentioned elected officials because the former mayor of Philadelphia, who is black, just kind of came after Krasner recently and said, look, man, it's my neighborhood where this is happening. Yep. You know, it's my neighborhood where these these things are um, these things are going on. And, um, you know, you, you may be able to sit in your office and, you know, write down your stats and, you know, your improvements. But um, this is a real deal. And I think you mentioned in, in West Baltimore, um, I remember a mayor's race where, you know, people were coming on from poor neighborhoods and saying, hey, I want the police here. Absolutely. And I was, I remember being in jail one time. I was talking to a guy. He was doing like 30 years for murder. And they brought in some students in from Howard, or I think it was good, Georgetown University to kind of interact with it. So they broke them up into pairs and they're talking. And uh, this this young woman's like, well, what, you know, what happens when, um, what happens when someone comes in? Uh, to your neighborhood, a police officer comes in and just rolls up on you and um, mm-hmm. starts to hassle you. And um, the, the the inmate said, "Look, little girl, if those 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 police officers were not in the neighborhood. It would be chaos. It would be chaos in your neighborhood." And I think that's uh, that's a fact that people, you know, people do want police. They want to see that patrol car rolling down into their neighborhood. Yeah. And, you know, and what's gotten people's attention here in Baltimore, the recent, you know, we've had, I believe it's 32 murders already this year, um, is the amount of innocence, what I call innocence being killed. Yeah. Um, you know, it used to be fine in these big cities like New York and Philadelphia and Baltimore and L.A. when it was gangbanger or a drug deal or killing drug sure. deal. Right. Sure. No one paid sure. attention, didn't care about the number. Right. Right. Um, now we're seeing more and more innocence and that's getting the attentions of some of these elected officials. And you start, you know, in, in Baltimore in particular, you start having people not want to come into the city uh, because you could be sitting at a red light and catch a stray bullet or, yeah. or somebody or somebody pulling you out of a car because they want your, you know, Honda Civic. And and in New York, particularly, the, the mayor just took over. Uh, I think he took over New Year's Day. And it's been a barrage of just really just tough crime issues for him he had a woman pushed in front of the subway he's had these two officers killed and people are saying yo what are you doing you know what are you going to do about this and uh, what is the solution what is the how how can we reduce these shooting deaths of police officers I, i think putting cops in um in a position strategically and focused on getting guns off of people not just recovering guns. We went through that here in Baltimore with the Gun Trace Task Force, where leadership just wanted the gun, right? Yeah. And not the bad guy that went with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, f- being relentless on their follow-up and strategic planning and empowering cops to go out there, because you can do both. You can get guns and be within the Constitution. Right. It, it, it's been proven. Uh, people don't like to hear that. But, um, you know, when everybody's carrying a gun because the, the cops aren't getting in their pockets, Right. Or in their car, then everybody's mm-hmm. going to carry a gun. So now mm-hmm. when something goes off, instead of one guy having a gun, mm-hmm. everybody's got one. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing more and more of that, right? You're seeing multiple shooters at the scene. Bad guy pulls a gun on another bad guy. Other bad guy pulls out a gun. Everybody yeah. pulls out a gun. Right, right, right. When we, were, when we were successful, you know, in the early, in the late, well, the early 2000s, mm-hmm. that's because people weren't carrying guns on them. Yeah. That gun was around the corner. It was in a potato chip bag in the store, wherever. Mm-hmm. And when things went down, 
No one had a gun. They had to go get it. Yeah, and I guess there was laws too around that time, and maybe they're still in the books, where if you were carrying a gun, it was an automatic five years. And um, has that helped? In- no, it's not being used. Um, mm-hmm. Possession, Illegal possession of a handgun in Baltimore, in Maryland, is a misdemeanor. Oh, my gosh. And then looking, looking forward, what do you see happening? I see it turning. I predicted this a little while ago. Um, that the law-abiding citizens, the, the vast majority, would be able to overcome the small minority of folks who were the loudest at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, it's come at the cost of a lot of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I see it turning around. I see it turning around politically. I see, you know, politicians are going to jump on whatever side is going to get them reelected. Right, Jerry? Yes. We, know that. Yes. we lived it. Yes. <laughs> yes, we did. Um, that's the side they're going to fall on. Yeah. And, um, and so you'll see the tables turning the other way because if these shootings keep happening, particularly shootings of police officers, ambushing of police officers, assassination, and I think you used the word execution, execution of police officers is what's going on out there. And uh, I think you're right. I think it will turn around um, if these kind of incidents keep happening because, you know, when a police officer gets shot and killed, that's on the front page. That's on the news. That's that's serious stuff. And people do empathize with police officers when that happens, I think so. And, um, you know, that's um, that's kind of the way it um, – yeah, I think you're right. I think it will probably turn around. It's going to take a while. Yep. Hopefully not too long, because like I said, it, it's costing people's lives sure is. in the meantime. Hey, always good to have you on. I appreciate you taking the time. Tell us a little bit about the book. Well, you know, hopefully the book will be out in May. It's it's a memoir. It chronicles my time as, as a police officer and as a union president. Um, and some of the good things we did and some of the mistakes I made. Mm-hmm. I tell people it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's you got to be so disciplined. Um, it's, it's nuts. Yeah, well, you know, the, the book advice, the best book advice I ever got was sit your butt in the chair. That's number one rule of yeah. writing. Sit your butt in the chair and just write. And it's a hard thing to do. You're right. You got things, you're juggling things and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, we're looking forward to that and we'll have you back on definitely to talk about that once uh, once it comes out. Great. Thanks, Jerry. All right, no problem. And we want to bring in our technical producer, Brad, maybe the Wizard of Pods, to talk a little bit about the football game last week. I don't like to talk about sports because a lot of people aren't into sports, but that was a game of the ages, the Buffalo Bills, your hometown, against the Kansas City Chiefs, and wow. Yes, wow, indeed. Well, hello, Jerry. <laughs> and uh, there, there's really... Only one thing that you could say, and and this is what I've been saying in in the week that that since that game has happened, that's being a Buffalo Bills fan. I mean, that is that is that is exactly what being a Buffalo Bills fan is all about. They they put together these teams, and in the early '90s when we went to four yep. Super Bowls, no one could beat the Buffalo Bills. There are two teams that won a hundred games in the '90s: the Bills mm-hmm. and the Cowboys. I remember. So you, they, the Bills assemble these teams and they, they, they have these amazing seasons that are just yeah. filled with so much to cheer about, so many players to love. And then when it comes right down to, to right, it, sure. we're at the precipice of yes. greatness. Yes, it's heartbreaking. Uh, it, uh, the, it's the, heartbreaking. Uh, the, yes, the magic bullet comes and shoots us all in the heart and uh, we, we, we die several deaths uh, during the course of a playoff game as we watch our team 
take the lead, lose the lead, take the lead, and in 13 <laughs> seconds, that was lose incredible. the lead. I, I've I, never seen that before in my life. When we scored that touchdown with the 13 seconds left, I got a text from a friend in Florida that was like, holy crap, you guys did it. And yes. And I just, my instant reply was, hold on. <laughs> Hold on. Seconds, it, you got to say that <laughs> it wasn't like you know hold on we're gonna blow it it was just like well hold on until it's official and it, it, uh, no it became official it's just not yeah. the uh, way i wanted it to and, and it's very particular like particularly for buffalo citizens now you don't have a baseball team you don't have a basketball team you have the sabers hockey team which has always had some success then they've done some things yeah. well but i was in buffalo for a philadelphia eagles game one time and it was during that time in the, in the 90s when they were winning and jim kelly and uh, thurman mm. thomas and and all those those great players were there and uh, the people of buffalo love that team and i remember that i remember the commitment they had because i was sitting in the stadium and i was freezing because that wind <laughs> is coming off the lake i mean it's coming yeah. off the lake and they they're there every week and they're filling that stadium and it's a good town it's, it's good people um i remember we were we went into canada was a busload of Philly cops and we went into Canada and the agent came on and she said, How long what you boys staying in Canada? And one guy yelled, How late's it open till <laughs> <laughs> but, what, but what does it do to a city um like that when when these this it it is heartbreaking for them. Well, it's it's funny, you know, because I'm those four Super Bowls were my four years of college. So my freshman through senior year uh of college the bills were in the super bowl all those years and you know obviously lost them all so i've you know uh what's the expression this isn't my first rodeo i since a very young man you know when i when i was a kid throughout the 80s the bills just stunk i mean right yeah, you know, the, the, the OJ was on that were, team. OJ yeah. Simpson and how yeah. he racked up that many yards and such. You know, a here's a here's amazing. a fun fact. I saw OJ Simpson play as a, as a as a wee lad. No kidding. One of the first games at uh, Rich Stadium, OJ was still a Bill, and I I was able to see him play once. Well, I don't remember it, but I was told I was there. Well, that was amazing, too, because you talk about all the great rushers in our time, and we're kind of getting off of the Buffalo Bills, but he he ran for over 2,000 yards. He was the first one to do it, and he did 2003, it. 2003, yeah. A, it was just such a bum team, and that, and I think that's what's taken away from him is that, hey, you know, Thurman, I mean, uh, yeah, Thurman Thomas and Emmett Smith, they were on great teams, you know. They had yeah. good blockers, but OJ, yeah, yeah, man, yeah. he was doing this whole thing his, uh, himself, and um, it, I mean, any time that the team every, every team goes into the, the, the season with hope unless you know your team's really a bummer but um and if that's the heartbreak only one team can walk away a winner yeah this is true only one team uh, and really quickly let me address a couple of things that you said uh one uh sitting in the stands when it's 20 below well wind chill of 20 below yeah i i don't know how we do it but they're there is such a specialness to a football game. And especially if your football team is good, that the cold just doesn't, I don't know. It just doesn't affect you. It's the weird. If I go to a baseball game in the spring and it's under 65 degrees, I'm leaving. 
I can't. <laughs> Where's the hot chocolate vendor or I'm going home? Uh, you know, you get two Labatt Blues in me uh, and I can go sit in 20 below at, at, at the stadium in Orchard Park. You know, and I'm Well, you didn't the factor in the alcohol there. You yeah, didn't well, mention yeah, the alcohol. alcohol. That's, That's alcohol another thing. <laughs> but I don't know what it is. If it's not 65, I can't go watch a baseball game, but I can watch a football game in, in subarctic temperatures. And I was at that Monday night game. Uh, that we lost to the to the Patriots in Buffalo right before the, the season ended. So uh, and and that was like a windy day. That was a wind right. chill day. Sure. So sure. I remember walking to the stadium like thinking, oh, my God, I'm freezing. But then, you know, the kickoff and yes, it just it's washes exciting. away. I'm not cold. Yeah. Everyone's on their feet and, yeah. and the yelling. And, and I wasn't even drinking that much in my older age. I don't drink at sporting events as much yeah. because yeah. I don't like to have to pee. Every <laughs> <laughs> that's another factor so, so now know. it's just like yeah one and i'm good because i don't want to be running to the john every five minutes and uh so then and then you were talking about what that does to uh, to to a city and i can only speak for myself and back in the day i i never felt it as worse as I did when we won or when we when we won, when we lost that first Super Bowl against the Giants mm-hmm. and the wide mm-hmm. right kick. I mean, we Great. were right there. Great. Yep. We had the kick. We had that game because at the time our kicker was money in sure. the bank, Scott Norwood. And, uh, you know, he just he didn't make it. He didn't make what what should have been a gimme for him. And that devastation. I remember I had to get my driver's license renewed that Monday. Mm-hmm. So the Bills lost the Super Bowl. And that Monday, I'm standing at the DMV, and I remember, I'll never forget this, a collective just feeling of everyone in there wanted to go kill someone. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go back to the shooting scene. Just, yes. just the devastation was was palpable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and every year, you know, for some people, that, that got worse. And for some people... You know, 20 years went by. We were a losing team for 20 yeah. years after those uh, that run, like somewhere in the late 90s. You know, we stopped making the playoffs until a couple of years ago. And it, the Bills got to a point where, and, and I say this and people laugh at me, I just say, they can't hurt me anymore. <laughs> they, they can't hurt me anymore. You know, I'm, I'm right there. You know, when the season starts, yeah, I'll watch. And, you know, we win a couple. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm there. I'm there. And yes, then when we start, yeah, we've yeah. lost some doozy games this yeah. season. Like, I didn't think we were going to end up in a playoff run. Yeah. It's just like I would say to my friends, well, they can't hurt me. They can't hurt me yeah. anymore. And, and the night we lost, I was surprisingly fine with it. Yeah. It was just yeah. like, you know, it's, it's, it's in my mind. It's always a great chance of them blowing the big one, and and, right. and they did. And and to to watch that game though, that one was a particularly tough heart attack situation because we made those two great touchdown yes, plays sure, to take the sure. lead that those yeah, twenty five points sure. scored in the last two minutes. But you know, the next day I'm talking to friends that just. I'm I'm, I'm gonna go out and start punching people in line at Burger King. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah, You you talked about the P thing. So I was in the Buffalo. It was my Eagles in Buffalo. We went up to see the game. Buffalo jumps out twenty-one nothing. They had the no huddle offense and just blow away. And so it's about maybe I don't know minute left to the half. And I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna (laughs) pee. Eagles are backed up. They're back to their own too. They they're back. I come back. I missed the longest touchdown pass in NFL history. <laughs> Randall Cunning back and went back and he threw it down. It was like a it was like a hundred and three yard pass. It was nice. just yeah. It's, but it's interesting too because you know when you break football down, 
it's really about um, community. And I, I think I think about the old Roman days. I mean, football players are our gladiators. I mean, they put yeah. everything on. And I remember, you know, I was a Phillies fan, and the Phillies, you know, were just always they've, – they've won two World Series, but they've lost 10,000 games in their history, uh, more than any other sports team. Uh, you want to know something funny? I was at the 10,000th loss. <laughs> I was living in Philly at the time. And as a Mets fan, I remember that day. Like, Phillies can lose their 10,000th career. I, when, like, I'm going. I'm yeah. going. I want to. I was at that game. But the thing that's interesting, and it's, it's with Buffalo fans and the Dallas Cowboy fans, I think they all want to hang themselves because they, they've been so good and they keep losing in the big games. But, you know, we had a we had a saying, you know, win, lose, or tie, we're Phillies fans till we die. And that's yeah. the thing that's really interesting. And people don't understand, like particularly in Philly, it's all of the horrible, they're the horrible fans in the country. Well, those players are representing them. And they see themselves in those players. And they're, it's not about meanness. It's not about – it's about pride. It's about pride in your city. It's about pride. Uh, you, what you, and, and unfortunately, I think mean, that's one of the measurements of, of cities in our country. How's your, how good your baseball team? How good your football team? And, uh, yeah, uh, well, sorry that you're going to have a long, uh, long another right, until well, the well, season wait, comes wait, around. I- let me before I let me before we go. I have to burst your bubble. Anytime a Philly fan gets all highfalutin with sportsmanship, <laughs> I like to say you were. I like to remind everyone you're also the town that booed Santa. All right, well, you guys booed Santa. No, even right? worse, even worse. We hit him with snowballs. So I'm, I'm talking to this guy one day, and it, so there was a guy that used to come to the stadium at the last football game dressed as Santa Claus at the December game. You know, so. The Philadelphia Eagles always yeah. had a Santa. Well, the Philadelphia Eagles Santa doesn't show up, and they come in the stands, and they say to this guy, would you do it? He said, yeah, sure. So he's in a convertible, like, circling the thing, and he says, I feel the first snowball hit me in the back of the head. And I turn around, and they're just raining down on me. You know? But to talk about another funny story, we could talk about this all day, but I was in the gym in D.C. one time, and they were talking about who has the best, who has the best stadium and who has the best parking and all that stuff so one guy says Meadowlands someone said Pittsburgh there's an old guy running on the treadmill next to me <laughs> and he says Philly has the best because you get off 95 all the parking's there all the stadium's there you're back on 95 he says the only bad thing is you got to put up with those obnoxious Phillies fans uh, Philly <laughs> fans so I had a Philly shirt on and I turned and looked at him and he said but I understand they're great people once you get to know them <laughs> just a, very quick which was very good well it was good to talk about that buddy I, I hope next well, year well I would like to just really quickly yeah that he couldn't he couldn't be more right Philly has everything <laughs> Right down there, the football, the baseball, <laughs> and the hockey yeah. rink are all a block all apart in, in South Philly. Yeah. Ample parking, and the Walt Mittman's right there. And there were some days if you left a Phillies game or an Eagles game just at the right time, and you're like, I'm on the Walt Whitman, and I'm going to be home in Yes, that's right. That's, it was that's the right. best feeling. Yeah. yeah. So next year, I hope we can come back and talk about the Buffalo Bills Super Bowl. And that's not out of the question. Always all next right. year. All right. Bye. From your lips to God's ears, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, buddy. Hey, we will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember, read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields 
takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career, covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.